This is your life, God's truth, your QFM. It's Phil, and it is my honor to have in the studio with me candidate for governor. I think he might have been the first to declare his candidacy for governor. On the Republican side, it's Dr. Scott Jensen. Welcome, Dr. Jensen. Good to see you. Thank you, Phil, for having me. And actually, I think Mike Murphy was the first one to announce. He announced in February. (laughs) I announced in March. All right. All right. Well, it's good to have you here, and it's no small thing running for state office. I remember seeing some of the videos of you feeling uh, for such a time as this, right, is kind of why you uh, stepped right in. Before I went into medicine, Phil, I was in the seminary. And so faith has always been a driving force for Mary and I and our family. And the words of Esther 414, have I considered that I'm in the position I'm in for such a time as this is absolutely what drove us uh, to saying, yes, we're going to do this. Hebrews 414 also says, hold fast to the beliefs you profess. And people have asked me, is this something that's always been on my bucket list? I would say no. I would rather jump out of an airplane with a parachute. (laughs) But I think there are times where you're called to travel to Nineveh, and you don't get to divert and say, I'm going to go take a cruise on the Mediterranean. So as unpleasant as this journey can be in the world of politics, Mary and I are absolutely all in. We're in together. And uh, it's absolutely doable because our faith is with us every day, every moment. Yeah. And I want to mention your wife is here. Mary is here in the studio with us, actually. So it's nice to meet her. And she travels with you quite a bit. (laughs) She does. I've encouraged her to pick and choose what she wants to go to because let's make no mistake about it. uh, The political trail can be pretty tedious. And oftentimes it can be even downright offensive. But Mary and I have been together for 43 years. We've got three wonderful children, an anesthesiologist, uh, an estate attorney, and a family doctor. And Mary's a veterinarian. So we've really, as a family, had a chance to share ideas through decades and decades. And we know each other pretty well. I know you were on a school board for a number of years, got involved in your community, and then uh, in the Senate for two terms, right? One term. One term. Okay. It felt like three. Yeah, I'm sure it did. And, you know, uh, we're going to get into that here in a bit, but we've got to talk about COVID. And and I think, you know, when that exploded on the scene, it's been almost two years now, you know, you as a doctor, uh, didn't take long for you to see some things that you weren't comfortable with of what was being uh, said out there. There's a lot of fear out there with COVID. And, and boy, you were getting national recognition on Fox and all sorts of different things about, you know, saying some things that were running against what the norm was at the time. And just this morning before you came, there's more stories again now with the, the next variant, this Omicron, and how Minnesota, there's so much COVID and the Hospital Association sent out a statement this morning telling people, don't go to the hospital to get tests because we're overwhelmed and certain school districts feeling like they might have to go back to distance learning and on and on and on. Wow, uh, Dr. Jensen, it's been two years. I mean, where do you think we're headed with this thing again? And is this, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but is is there a main power struggle here that's driving this as well as the uh, as well as the bug itself i think there's a power struggle but i think there's also a generous dosage of stupidity going on hmm. <clears throat> i think that when i was in the senate i told my colleagues over and over again whenever we think we can legislate in conflict with human nature we're going to end up having unintended consequences you get what you incentivize we have been seeing broad based incentivizing of fear and we're getting that I was on call over the last weekend, Phil, and literally 
every hour I was getting calls, many from our patients, but some from people who had never met me, from people who were out of state that had come down with COVID. Should I go to the emergency room? Should I go to urgent care? What should I do? What medicine should I get? Would you please call in steroids and antibiotics for me? I think people were forgetting because they haven't been reminded that for 80% of the population that gets COVID, they'll probably have mild to moderate symptoms at most. And yeah. this will be able to be treated like an influenza, fluids, chicken soup, things like that. But instead, I think people have been scared silly. And I think that they're also very fearful that if they get admitted to the hospital, that they lose control, they relinquish control of their health. So they desperately don't want to go to the hospital as an inpatient. So they're saying, well, should I go to the hospital as an outpatient? Should I go and get my test confirmed? Because if I don't get it confirmed, I don't want to kill grandma, but do I really need to stay away from work for 14 days? Or do my kids have to get pulled out of daycare for 14 days because they just got off a 14-day quarantine? Or can we take advantage of the CDC's new recommendations and only do five days? Dr. Jensen, can you please help me. Yeah. We are getting exactly what our public health officials have bargained for. And it's a combination of people wanting power, but also not realizing that what they're doing is incentivizing behavior that's driving people to the emergency rooms. You can ask the question, what's the context of the given situation? Well, the context overall is in Minnesota, we have about 10,000 available hospital beds. Well, if we have 10,000 available hospital beds and 1,500 patients are hospitalized because of COVID, not just because they had a positive test with a broken leg, but they got hospitalized because they have COVID, that's 15% of our hospital beds are being used for COVID patients. Is that overwhelming? We're being told in many situations it is, but we don't have people waiting on the streets to get a hospital bed. Yes, in hospitals, we divert all the time. I, I could walk into an emergency room shift and the head nurse will say, Dr. Jensen, we've got two unit beds, three telemetry beds, and eight floor beds. And um, that's what we're going to have to work with tonight. And if we go past those in terms of admissions for that night's shift, we divert and we'll put a patient in another neighboring hospital. Hospital administrators are good at what they do. The nurses do a great job of managing and juggling the various beds available. But the idea that people should run to the hospital or to the emergency room because they had a positive test is absolutely wrong. People should just lock in to doing normal common sense stuff. Maybe give a call to your clinic during daytime hours so you can get some advice. Frankly, I'll give you a freebie with no copay being charged for (laughs) Get on vitamin C and vitamin D and zinc. Think about this plant flavanol molecule called quercetin. That can be highly helpful in terms of helping zinc do the work that zinc can do in terms of being an antiviral player. But I think we need to do those things, and it certainly makes a lot of sense. Hydrate well. Keep your temperature down. If you've got a fever over 100, you're probably burning off more fluid than you realize. We call it insensible losses. So you got to keep replacing it and stay in touch with your doctor's yeah. office. Distance learning at schools would Dist- be a mistake. Distance learning, has, it's a failed experiment. We already know that. We know that we saw more domestic abuse, more physical abuse, more suicidal ideation, more suicides. We saw all that. We're seeing both sides of this discussion acknowledge that. And yet we're doubling down and saying, well, let's do distance learning. I think we really have to ask the question, what are the teachers' unions seeing 
that's driving their agenda. Teachers go into teaching because they want to touch kids' lives. And I take care of dozens and dozens of teachers in my practice, and they're not supportive of distance learning. They know how troubling it is and also how little information is, if you will, conveyed. We need to have kids in with their teachers. And this idea that distance learning is the next logical step is an absolute power play by teachers unions. And it's wrong. Yeah. You're running for governor and governor Tim Walls was in the, in the seat during this whole COVID thing. And I know you heavily criticized him for how he handled things as did a lot of us. Uh, what did he do wrong? And, you know, what do you uh, let's hope he doesn't start to grab some more power again this year before the election. I can't imagine he would do that. But he did some things wrong in your mind. I understand. Yes. And, but I think to start, let's be fair. This is uncharted territory. Governor Walls was put in a situation like no governor has ever been put in before. True. So I think Minnesotans collectively said, hey, we're with you. On March 17th, 2020, with the first lockdown, people said, oh, okay, two weeks in order to flatten the curve and not overwhelm our healthcare facilities. We get it. We can do that. But quickly, we saw that it wasn't working. And quickly, we saw emergency powers being extended and extended. I think that the lockdowns of our businesses the lock-ins of our fragile elderly so that they had to die alone, the lock-out of our students in schools were all problematic. What was the basic underlying feature of those lockdown decisions? I would say one size fits all. Bemidji looks a whole lot different than Minneapolis. If you really believe in local control, then don't just preach it. Make it happen. And we didn't see that happen. We had counties that had no active cases at all of covid being treated exactly like Minneapolis. That was the problem. We saw natural immunity, if you will, pulverized as a scientific concept. We've never done that before. We saw the goalposts being moved with regularity. We saw the data that we were being fed by the Department of Health change depending upon whether it looked good or looked bad. We saw Commissioner Jan Malcolm in public release of email streams very willing to tell her staff to think more creatively and that the numbers she was being given weren't compelling enough to justify Hmm. her recommendations regarding policies. There was one email stream that made it very clear that they were willing to blame kids playing sports and parents going to their kids' games and then potentially gathering after the game and having a burger, being responsible for the next day going into nursing homes and spreading the disease to nursing homes. They wanted to pin a failed nursing home policy on parents of kids. Do we have no bounds to the indecency of our political system? That's what I'm getting from this whole thing. And then I think we saw the masking and the modeling and the lack of transparency. Those things were problematic. We saw Governor Walls get stuck in sort of a group think. He got caught in his own silo. And you might ask, well, that could happen to anybody, Phil. But the fact of the matter is, who it happens to is when you surround yourself with people who are beholden to you for their job, for their status, for their power and authority. So they're going to say, yes, sir, yes, sir. How high do you want me to jump? Yeah. You need to surround yourself with people that will say, bad idea. 
That's not what you want to do. And we're seeing it with the distance learning and everything else. So I think there were a lot of bad decisions. And, of course, it became very political. And as you look at the political divide, the left, which he is a part of, is about top-down, heavy, big government. You know, where if it was a Republican governor, I mean, look at, uh, you know, other states like South Dakota and Florida handling it completely different than what we did. So it is it did get very political and frankly still is. It leads me to a couple of things that are, in my opinion, very problematic for Minnesota. And I want to get your take on it. This rural metro massive divide that we have in this in this state and also divided government, the only state in the nation that has. Mm. Republicans controlling the Senate and Democrats controlling the House. And so we struggle to get anything done. And I think those two things are related. You know, you've got a lot of representation in the metro area that is very blue right now. And so Minnesota just struggles in those areas with divided government. We don't get a lot of things done. And then, of course, metro versus outstate. You know, can we can we overcome those things? You just summed up, Phil, why I'm running. Hmm. I think that when you have divided government, you have unique opportunities and unique problems. One of the opportunities is you force both sides to be able to at least reach across the aisle occasionally or listen to one another. Because if you don't, you will have true gridlock. And we see that. So there's a forced kind of bridge building that goes on. The downside is that If you're not going to do that, you can literally accomplish nothing, and you turn over so much power to your governor, who can literally become like an emperor, and that's what we've seen. And with emergency powers, we've seen bad legislation, poorly written legislation, be abused by a governor who used it not as necessarily the emergency authority that it was intended for, but instead as a tool for political negotiations in terms of budgeting and things like that. I think that Minnesotans have to ask themselves, have we gotten the balance that we would want from divided government, a Democratic House, a Republican Senate? To me, we haven't. I think the Republican Senate needed to stand stronger. They should not have given Governor Walz his $52 billion budget because once they did that, he had no use for them any further. Anything he did, it was going to be a negotiation. When I look at what have we gotten from the last five years, of Republican-controlled Senate, I see Jan Malcolm with more job security than she deserves. I'm seeing Governor Walls parade around with this thing, One Minnesota, which is just a silly mantra because we certainly are not One Minnesota. I see Ed Minnesota having gotten the biggest raise in the most recent budget cycle in decades. I see a crime epidemic that is like no other. And I'm seeing Minnesota having hooked our wagon to California car mandates. And I don't get that either. I don't see that we were strong enough negotiators on the Senate side. And that's why I decided to run. Yeah. You know, do you feel that we've got to get to where the Republicans, and it's my understanding is for 50 years, Republicans haven't had the governor, House, and Senate. You know, and until we get to that point, there's just a lot of things that aren't going to get done. Because in the metro, it's not just uh, blue. It's turning quite progressive you know, I don't know if you know, um, like Melvin Carter and some of those, the mayors down there willing to hand out the basic minimum income, putting money in savings accounts for infants being born, uh, free college. I mean, the divide between left and right is like 
nothing we've seen before. It's pretty hard to reach across the aisle. Am I am I wrong? Maybe there's some rural Democrats you can still do that with, but wow, this divide is is very stark. You're absolutely right, Phil. And what we're actually seeing is we're seeing politicians in power, in control, buying voting blocks. Hmm. If you can demonstrate to a group of people that you will give them what they want, you will give them what they haven't earned, and they say, gee whiz, doesn't get any better than this, you have literally purchased their allegiance. What has to happen is a massive uprising of people who believe in America, who believe that the Constitution is more than some document that can be used if it's convenient. Our God-given powers of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are indeed God-given. But the Constitution is there to preserve them for us. That's the bulk of what the Constitution does. Ron Paul speaks to that issue so persuasively. We have to recognize that the Constitution cannot be dissed just because it's not convenient. We're indeed seeing the penalty that you pay when you have politicians being able to dole out from the public treasury whatever they want. You ask, how are we going to make this happen? Well, candy canes are not going to fall from the sky tomorrow, Phil. And unless we figure out a pathway to winning, conservative beliefs are not going to get across the goal line. We've lost 25 times in a row. So we have got to stop with the tactical cannibalization that candidates do to one another. Candidates will say, oh, he did this, or he did this, and they play this gotcha game because they're always trying to elevate their own status. We have got to ask Minnesotans, which candidate do you think can touch the hearts and minds of people and create a groundswell that can actually translate into a victory? To me, that means that we have got to be better at communicating with millennials and Gen Zs and minorities and women in the suburbs. Quite honestly, the Republican Senate could have done so much better in respecting the concerns that suburban women brought to the table. It really wasn't recognized how powerful they were until we saw Glenn Youngkin win in Virginia with the Mama Bears. We're seeing that same energy in Bemidji, St. Peter, across Minnesota. Mary and I have traveled to many of these parent groups. They are rising up and saying, we refuse to have critical race theory be the part of our children's education. We want our kids foundationally educated, not indoctrinated. We're seeing mama bears across the state of Minnesota say, you will not disrespect me again. Because I'm in this for keeps. The Republican Party has not done a good enough job. We would be better off speaking at times to conservative beliefs rather than holding up as Republican beliefs. Well, that's that's Cons- true. Conservative means safeguard. Conservare is the Latin root word. To safeguard that which is good. That's what we need to do in this country. Well, we need to win the House back then. If these we mama should. bears are out there and if we're getting fired up, do you feel strongly we can win back the House in Minnesota. That's that's critical. I think we can, but I don't think we can do it with career politicians. I think there is an absolute recognition that when you become a career politician, too often the next election holds more importance than getting the job done. We need to be laser-focused on solving these problems. We need to pass in this state constitutional carry and stand your ground because, quite frankly, that's going to be part of the answer to the lawlessness that is invading our streets. We need to provide student choice so that parents can direct the dollars 
And we don't need to fund broken institutions. We need to have secure elections. And that means we need voter ID. More than half the states in the nation have that. But you and won't get it rewrite, without the House. And we've got to rewrite yeah. the emergency powers. We need to do those things in the first 100 days, and then we can deal with the budget. But we cannot let the budget drive away these hard conversations that need to take place regarding these important policy issues. Minnesota is losing its path. Yeah. Oh, I I do not disagree with that. And, of course, now the governor is going to be touting this budget surplus and going to take the credit for it. Uh, Explain to our listeners why that isn't true. It's not a surplus. It's theft. From the, the government took government. too much. The government <laughs> took $7 billion of your money, and now they're telling you, well, gee whiz, maybe we'll give you a pittance. But isn't Come a lot on. of it from the federal government, too, because of COVID? Isn't that part of it? Truly, it is. But if you actually add in the federal supplements, you could argue that we have literally $10 billion. Okay. But the bottom line is the bulk of that okay. is coming from citizens of America. They've been overtaxed. We don't have a revenue problem. We have a spending problem. I think a lot of people say, well, can you give me a couple examples, Dr. Jensen? And these would be the two that I think are important. We now score lower in public education in numerous cohort groups than Mississippi. Mississippi spends approximately $9,000 per student in their state. We pay 150% of that. We're $13,500, yeah. and we're underperforming. If you take welfare, the average welfare recipient in Minnesota is over $30,000. If you look at the four neighboring states, North and South Dakota, Iowa, and Wisconsin, none of them get to 19000 We have become a magnet for people who say, I need to have strong entitlement programs available oh, yeah. for me. And we are driving away the leaders and the entrepreneurs who are saying, listen, there's a lot of states where there's a friendlier business culture, where I'm going to start businesses. I'm going to get good paying jobs for people. And if Minnesota doesn't want me, fine. I'll do it in South Dakota. Yeah. You graduated from the University of Minnesota, I think, and that's a problem area for me, too. I'll just speak for myself. The ideology that seems to permeate these big schools these days, and it's it's a huge thing in Minnesota, the University of Minnesota. I mean, it's campuses all over, and, and I think it's a problem, uh, you know, where we're headed with college professors and and the socialism and this progressive ideology. It's toxic, uh, Dr. Jensen. It is, Phil, but I think it's important for us to ask the question, how did that happen? A switch wasn't flipped overnight where all of a sudden we had liberal professors. I think we have to go back to that old mantra, follow the money. We saw universities start to compete for groundbreaking research. And so we said, okay, well, we need to have some really good researchers here. Well, then research became part of your faculty promotion. If you didn't do research and publish you wouldn't get your next raise. At that point in time, funding your research became the all-important holy grail. Who's there to fund the research now? Big Pharma. So what we're seeing is a society increasingly dominated by that partnership that takes place between Big Pharma, Big Government, Big Tech, and now this liberal indoctrination in our academic centers. Our academics, our, excuse me, our academicians, our ivory tower professors have failed us. They are yeah. not committed 
to teaching nearly as much as they're committed to their research. And their research, they're committed to making certain that their next research project is funded. So we have seen a progressive growth of a liberal agenda. And in order for us to turn back the hands of time and have a more balanced approach to our young people in terms of their education, we're going to have to stop letting money drive the whole show. Hmm. Professors should be good teachers, first and foremost. They should be good teachers. We say the same thing in our public schools. If you think that you're on the faculty of this school because you are the best football coach available, you shouldn't be a tenured teacher in that school district. You need to be a teacher. And by the way, the extracurricular stuff is there to round out that child's education and experience while in high school. We need to be able to show this state that conservatism can work when it's really engaged uh, with constitutional issues, you know, and and see just how good that, how, how it works, you know. And I believe that foundation in the Bible as well is, is where that all came from. But we've been overwhelmed by, frankly, in my opinion, evil in many ways and some of these uh, ideologies out there. And Minnesota's just really been swept up in it quite a bit over these last 10 years or so. Phil, I've tried to be straightforward during this court campaign and i think it's important when we're wrong we say we're wrong and when we're right we can say we're right a couple points where i was off base i thought initially that the wuhan virus indeed came from a natural reassortment among various species i don't think that anymore i think that the likelihood is very strong that it came out of a lab i got that wrong but i also got it wrong when i watched the last 22 months of what has happened. I thought that when I raised my hand and said, you're, acting, you're asking us to corrupt the way we complete death certificates, I thought it was an innocent mistake, an oversight. People didn't realize what they'd been asking us to do as physicians. I raised my hand, and, but I didn't see a fix. Instead, I saw my license get investigated over and over again. I got it wrong. I didn't realize that there is this evil pursuit of power that has taken over so much. I th- I've always thought that I'd rather be a, a little bit of a naive optimist than a jaded cynic. But when I look at what's happening in the world today, there really is a battle. There's a battle going on. Oh, yes. And this battle holds, this evil side of things holds up power and control over other people's lives. We're wired as God's creatures to be independent and autonomous, where we reach out to our neighbor and we treat our neighbors ourselves and we live by the golden rule. We're not doing that now. We're absolutely undercutting those principles because we're all focused on power and dollars and control. And if we can't find our way back to bringing our creator and our God into our lives, we are absolutely destined to fail. And real quickly, I would just say two days ago, there was a California, excuse me, there's a Canadian commentary written where the Canadians are starting to talk about the fact that in the near future, they will not be able to rely on America to be the beacon for democracy mm. in the world. That is an incredible judgment by our neighbor to the north that they are starting to discuss the fact that America can no longer be dependent on. Yeah, well, look at where they're at these days. I mean, you know, they were supposedly a democracy as well, and that's just, wow, what's going on up there? But, yeah, I mean, we're headed that same direction. You mentioned uh, you've made some mistakes, okay? I want to I challenge you on one fairly recently. You uh, pulling John Thompson into an event. Now, I don't know much about that man. 
other than, you know, I read a number of things when he was campaigning and things that he was saying. And, you know, in some ways, I know that some think he should almost be in jail for some of the things that he's done. And you felt that it was a good idea at the time to pull him into some event you were at and get his perspective on things happening in the Metro, whether it's George Floyd or whatever. Uh, That doesn't seem like that was a very good idea to me. I think I have done good things that were fraught with political danger. This was not... (laughs) In my, in my Christian book of ethics, this was not a mistake at all. What happened was there was a group of Somalian black business leaders on Lake Street that had asked if they could have a meet and greet with me. So that was on our schedule for five or six weeks. The day before the event, we were called and told that the invitation list that that group of people had used to invite people to come to this event had included John Thompson. I assume that it would have included all the local legislators, mm-hmm. Senator Bobby Joe Champion and anybody else that was a sitting House or Senator. So I said, well, it is what it is. And they said, well, do you want to cancel and, and drop on? I said, well, we've been on the schedule for six weeks and these people organize that. Why would we do that? And they said, well, do you want us to disinvite John Thompson? I said, well, I don't control his life. He's a sitting representative. Why would I do that? I said, we just go down and have the conversation these people wanted to have and we Play it by ear. So we went down, and there were about 15, 16 people down there. And we were, there was no stage. It was, uh, you had to walk through a furniture store to get up to the stairwell to get to the second floor unconstructed area. Okay. And there were a, a handful <clears throat> of chairs set up in a sort of a semicircle. And there was a sort of a flimsy table there. And I leaned against the table, and we just started having a conversation. My wife was there, and we, uh, we had a lot of questions, and these questions weren't necessarily my strong suit. Mm-hmm. People wanted to know why Section 8 housing doesn't work better, why the Minneapolis City Council doesn't authorize more apartment buildings to be built. I did the best I could to answer these questions, and while I was answering them, John Thompson walks in. Okay. And so he went and very respectfully took a chair, sat down, and didn't say a word. I got done answering the question to the best of my ability, and I looked over at Representative Thompson. I said, Representative Thompson, the question on the floor is, why don't these housing initiatives work better? Do you have any perspective on what you think could be done to make it work better? And he stood up, and he came up, and we talked, and he answered questions, and I answered questions. And if there had been any other legislators there, we would have asked them to do the same. Right. He just if happened we, to be there. If, exactly. I didn't mutually schedule something with John Thompson. But I think that this is exactly what's wrong with the Republican movement. If we think that we get to judge another man, people have told me that they think John Thompson is evil. I don't think God's asking me for help in judging who's evil and who's good. As a physician, I certainly see people with mental health issues, bipolar issues, anger management issues. I see these folks all the time. I don't say, yes, I'll see you. No, I won't see you. I take all comers. I think the Republican Party has got to say, we're going to have those tough conversations, even if they're politically fraught with danger. Mm -hmm. Well, it's good to know what the scenario actually was. Because, I mean, obviously, he's never recanted for some of the toxic things he said and and done, which is very unfortunate. Well, actually, Phil, my understanding is uh, I think he told me that day that he was uh, going to apologize on the, I think when the uh, session starts in two, three weeks, I think he has every intention of apologizing for some of his comments. Okay. Took uh, him a while. uh, Yeah. But I think, (laughs) 
That's the thing about our yeah. Creator. He gives us a lifetime to repent. Yeah. Well, and I, I want to challenge you on one other thing because you mentioned, you know, it's something candidates shouldn't do is judge other people and things. And then, you know, we, we know it was Paul Gazelka that challenged you publicly for, and maybe others did too, uh, for this John Thompson thing. And then you had an opportunity to comment on, on uh, Mr. Gazelka and you brought up something uh, from his book, which that seemed weird to me. That you that you went there with that, you know, especially for us as a Christian radio station, you know, Paul wrote a book about his faith and different things. And there's some that consider him radical in his beliefs. And you kind of repeated that. It kind of, you know, that seems that that went a little bit too far, too. Do you regret doing that? That's a good question. I think I do. Yeah, I think I think I do regret that. The context of it, which matters, yeah. was the night before Paul Gazelk had been sharply critical of me, saying that my willingness to do that should be disqualifying. And then he went on and tore into John Thompson, yeah. bringing up allegations, allegations, not confessions, allegations okay. of uh, being guilty of uh, assaulting women or something like that. This was years and years ago. And it was never settled. It's an allegation. And yet in Paul's book, I referenced the fact that there was no allegation in the book. There was an acknowledgement or a confession on the part of the author of the book. And I said, so an allegation stands here and a confession stands here. It just irritated me that this holier-than-thou approach would be used in a discussion where in America, you're innocent until proven guilty. And I thought that for Paul, he could be irritated with me. But for him to bring up John Thompson and sort of air out all of his allegations, it just offended me deeply. And so I said, so hold it. I said, so he gets to do this in his book and say this and that. And we're supposed to say that's okay. But an allegation over here, it, it, the disconnect for me was just a little overwhelming. And um, I think in retrospect, I shouldn't have said it. Well, and let's hope, you know, we don't go further down that road in this election. But elections can be messy, right? I mean, you... <laughs> they sure can. Yeah, it, it can be, uh, uh, you know, pull out the worst in people every once in a while. So let's hope, with God's help, you know, we can just have an election that is really strong and effective and that the result of whoever wins, mm-hmm. you know, we can bring back conservative values and in we this need, state. And we need people like you, Phil, doing exactly what you just did. We need the media to challenge the candidates. We need you to ask yeah. harsh, hard, firm questions. And in so doing, candidates have to be willing to say, hey, yeah, well, I could have been better there. Well, we just, there's so many issues that mm-hmm. need to be dealt with just core issues for families and you know one of the big ones now roe versus wade is likely to be overturned this year you know i don't know if you've had it you're so busy to follow everything but the supreme court has that coming up and if that happens you know it's likely to go back to the states and so minnesota is going to be faced with dealing with that i know we have a minnesota supreme court decision doe versus gomez which is kind of uh, the ugly stepchild to roe versus wade for minnesota so all of a sudden, it's possible that in this campaign for governor, uh, the appointment of Supreme Court justices in Minnesota could be a huge issue. Have you thought much about that? 
Very much. I yeah. think it is a huge issue. We have a wonderful opportunity, and I think I, I believe that every candidate on the Republican side of the equation is a strong pro-life supporter. Yeah, I think so. But I think that the appointment of the judges, we're seeing this played out in real time. We're seeing it on the national level with a six to three conservative majority in the Supreme Court. That's wonderful. Yeah, I've talked to some of the Minnesota Supreme Court justices and I believe that there are several that would really like to see themselves replaced by a Republican governor because they know that this balance of power on the Supreme Court doesn't just govern how things will look for the next four years, but can literally govern the next decades. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big issue, isn't it? And I I, haven't heard much about Supreme Court justices in any governor's race in Minnesota for a long time. I think we're going to hear it this year. You know, it's going to be very interesting. And it's not just Supreme Court judges either. I mean, I think we've got yeah, to talk true. about that's true. The, the judges across the state that are allowing uh, seven, ten-year sentences for felon crimes to be literally plea bargained down to a matter of months. This yeah. is problematic. The genie and the the genie got out of the bottle, and the genie is a, a brand and a poison of lawlessness like I've never seen before. And I think our prosecuting attorneys and our liberal judges have really set us up for this. Yeah, and now there was a story again this morning about how COVID is affecting the judicial process because they can't find jurors because they're or, or other people in the judicial system that are out because of testing positive for COVID. So if they can plea bargain with any of these, you know, uh, people that have been arrested to avoid the courts, I mean, that just doesn't sound good to me. I mean, it's another watering down of justice. I agree with you completely. And I think that we're going to continue to see this happen until conservatives can push across the goal line and win. And again, I, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but... We have got to be able to put a candidate forth that can change the hearts and minds of people. And it can't just be about getting a really huge, robust turnout of Republican voters. It has to be a candidate that can pull in the independent vote. Yeah, that's right. Because if you look at the numbers, arguably we have less than 35% Minnesotans as Republicans. Yeah, That means to get to that 50% mark, you're going to need your 15% at least from the independents. Yeah. Well, good luck to you, and God bless you and your wife, Mary, and uh, as you continue to campaign, I'm sure it's been quite an experience. It has, and I think that Mary and I have talked about this a lot, and I remember asking her probably about a, a month ago, I said, it was, yeah, it was probably about a month ago, and I said, well, so what do you think? And she said, well, I've definitely enjoyed more of it than I thought I would in terms of going out and meeting Minnesotans. I think Mary gets a little bit uh, turned off by the tawdry nature of politics and sort of the gotcha game, and oh, yeah. and I do too. I, I think that people have asked me, is this something that you really you know, have wanted to do for years? And I've just told them, no. I said, this is not a bucket list thing for me. But Mary and I feel together that we are compelled to run, and so we're going to be a part of the conversation, and we'll give the campaign trail some of its shape. And uh, yeah. we're absolutely confident that uh, those words, uh, if God is for us and who can be against us, yeah. uh, will guide our lives. And that's really a good place mm. for us to be. That's a good place for us to end as well. Thank you for that. And again, God bless you. And we'll no doubt see you again. Phil, com is where people yes. can learn more about us if they want. We've tried to be as transparent as we can. So if you go to com, that can help. 
February 1st is Precinct Caucus Thank Night. Thank you. I was just going to mention around that. The, yeah. Around the state. It's and huge. People ask about that, and that's for Democrats and Republicans alike. Yeah. And people say, well, do I have to be a Re- registered Republican to go? No. You'll be asked to sign a statement that says basically that you agree with conservative principles, and that'll be the do-all end-all right there. But you can go to caucus, and I would ask people to go on February 1st, and I would love their support, to be sure. But regardless, we need an engaged citizenry like we've never had before. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and as you go on from the caucus to become a delegate, I'm sure you would appreciate people being a delegate for you, going on to the conventions, etc. Very much. Yeah. Again, drscottjensen.com. Is that what it is? Okay. Yes. And Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N. And uh, safe travels. Thank you so much. It's yeah. good to be up here in Bemidji, but I think the negative 10, negative 15 degree temperature, <laughs> negative 30 degree wind chill, we could have maybe kept it a titch warmer. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's amazing. The metro area is always 10 or 15 degrees warmer than we are up here, but uh, oh well. It's good for you, right? It is. Very good. That's Thank right. you, Phil. Uh, this is your life, God's truth, your QFM.